going to be in Mark chapter 14 tonight. Mark chapter 14. If you could turn your Bibles there. I'm excited. This is my first time breaking out the ESV. It's all new and stuff. We should do this like once every three years. I love getting new Bibles, you know? This is great. Let's just pray again. Holy Spirit, come. God, we just open ourselves up to you tonight. We refuse to hold back. We refuse to be distracted by the things of this life. We know tonight you have something for us, God. We don't walk into this room just as a religious checklist that we feel like we have to accomplish. We come in here because we want to hear you. We come in here because we believe that our God lives, our God moves, our God loves us. And tonight, as we open your word, we're not just opening some ancient text and trying to uh, fit it into our theological boxes. God, we are saying, God, teach us your ways. Teach us what you would have for us tonight. Speak to us, your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, speaking of Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be any uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table A woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It was one of those worship nights. The room was full of people. The lights were dim. The room seemed to be just full of this tangible presence of God, almost like it had been filled up in a a liquid form. Uh, Hands were raised, knees were bent, and hearts were crying out in worship to God. But not everybody in this room was fully abandoned in their praise to the Lord. She was struggling. It wasn't that she didn't love God, she genuinely did, but work, work was on her mind. Distracted by the tasks of tomorrow and the productivity of today, she stood, closed her eyes like everyone else, even mouthed a few words of the song, but her heart was somewhere else. Something inside her kept telling her to let go of her desire for success and to step into the presence of God, but she refused. Her mind wasn't just distracted, it was overtaken by the drive for success. She wasn't the only one on that night who was struggling to worship. He, too, had his heart somewhere else. 
on the way to the worship night, he had gotten so angry with his wife that he screamed at her in the car before they had gotten out. So he stood there, arms folded, unbothered by the worship leader's call to raise one hand and praise to the Lord. His attitude was cold, and his mind had kept telling himself he was justified for his anger. His wife needed to know that she had crossed the line. He was a man. Men get angry sometimes. But some deep part of him called out to him to make things right with his wife and repent. But he was not bothered. He would stand there for the rest of the night, unable to sing one verse in a praise to Jesus. How often do we experience something holding us back from the presence of God? And it's not just in times of worship. It can be times of devotion. It can be times of scripture reading. It can be times of prayer, silence and solitude before the Lord. And there's something inside of us that just keeps us from experiencing his full presence. Now, to be fair, sometimes it's simply just distraction, right? Like sometimes we just are distracted by the things of, of, of our lives. I heard a pastor say one time, it isn't a sin to be distracted. It's called being human, Every time we are distracted in prayer or worship, we should view it as an opportunity to turn our gaze away from our distractions and onto our Lord, something that he loves. And I don't think God gets mad at us for being distracted once in a while and having to say, I am sorry, God, let me get back into my praise to you. But what I'm talking about tonight isn't just distraction, I'm talking about something deeper. Something inside of us that isn't just distracted from the presence of God, but actually keeps us from experiencing what we think this Christian life should all be about. Something holding us back, almost like it's locked itself out of heaven itself, unable to really experience all that God says he wants us to experience. In our study of the book of Mark, we've come to a really, really well-known story in the Gospels. Um, if you've been a Christian for even a short amount of time, you've probably heard this story um, told to you. This story takes place in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. And there is some debate to like, when this story actually chronologically happens. In John's Gospel, it occurs six days before the Passover, meaning that would be the previous Friday, right? But in, in Mark's Gospel, it seems that this is happening on Wednesday, but what we see here is Mark's placement of this story as actually isn't chronological. He's not saying that this happened at this moment. It's actually thematic. What he's doing is he's preparing you for Judas's act of betrayal. Imagine like big parentheses around this story, kind of leading you up to Judas's act of betrayal, kind of giving the rational thoughts that were going through Judas's mind before he betrayed Jesus, the Son of God. So this story has incredible implications for what is about to happen in the rest of the chapter. In this story, we find Jesus relaxing at a table, which is something, a practice I think we should bring back instead of sitting at, at dinner tables, you know? Instead of sitting down, we should be laying down. That sounds great. I want to I eat my In-N-Out burger laying down, not sitting, you know? Anybody else? Just me? All right. So we don't really know who Simon is, but we know this is his house. There's a couple clues that we can kind of, uh, we can guess to who Simon was. Obviously, Simon was a leper. He's no longer a leper. Otherwise, he wouldn't be hosting this dinner party with Jesus there. 
Uh, and you guys know, uh, leprosy was a disease that, that was so contagious that lepers were moved out of the, the social workings of community altogether, and they created their own little social communities because their diseases were so contagious. So obviously, it would seem that Simon was somebody who had been healed by Jesus, and he was hosting this, this dinner party with him. In John's gospel, we get a little bit more detail about who else was there that night. In John's gospel, what we see is that Lazarus, the, the man that Jesus raised from the dead, was also there. Martha and Mary, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, the sisters of Lazarus were there. So some commentators believe Simon actually to be the father of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Can't prove it, but I think it's pretty interesting. So he's sitting there, Jesus is re relaxing at the dinner table and with his disciples and with Simon, and as they're relaxing, a woman, a woman enters the room. This woman, who we find out to be Mary from John's gospel, enters into the room and proceeds to take out what would have been a stone flask with a really long neck on the top. What she does is she breaks the neck to the point where it can't be used again, and pours out the entire bottle on his head. And in John's gospel, we see his feet as well. Her actions spark, spark great controversy in the disciples, so much so that they say this money should have been sold, and, or this, this ointment should have been sold and given to the poor. Um, we don't know, who knows, if the disciples' concerns were truly uh, authentic. But we do know that, do know that Judas wanted to pocket the money in reality instead of giving it to the poor. But Jesus rebukes his disciples. Leave her alone. What she has done for me is beautiful. You will always have the poor in your care, but I will not be here for long. She has anointed my body for burial, and truly, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be told. Jesus has an incredibly strong reaction to this act of Mary. He doesn't just say, you know, God bless you for your worship to me tonight. He doesn't just say, thank you for honoring me the way you have. He says that this story, out of all the stories that have happened in the last couple of chapters of Mark and in all the Gospels, this story would be the one that is told alongside of the good news of Jesus Christ. Alongside the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself is told this story of Mary pouring out ointment on his head. Why? Why was Mary's act so profound for Jesus that he honored her with such praise? First, I think it was because of what it cost her. Up until this point, you've noticed a couple of themes that, that go throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? They're, they're like threads that you can trace from the beginning all the way to the end. The first theme in Mark's Gospel uh, that's important is he paints Jesus in this picture as a king, but as the suffering servant, right? Throughout the gospel, he is, he is uh, explaining Jesus in a way that, that, that paints him in the light of a suffering servant. One commentator said it like this, a major theme in this gospel is the discipleship call to follow the serving, suffering savior. While Jesus is presented as a powerful Messiah, he is also revealed as the suffering one. The theme of how suffering is the path to exaltation and how the cross plays a major role in, to, is critical to understanding Jesus and the call to follow him. 
Another theme that, that presents itself in the Gospel of Mark that John Mark was, was using as he writes is this theme of outcasts. Throughout the entire gospel, you can trace how Jesus intentionally seeks out people who were outcasts in the Jewish, Jewish social system. Here in this story, this theme presents itself louder than ever. Bethany is located outside of Jerusalem. The, the, the chief priests, the, the Pharisees, the elite of the Jewish, Jewish social, social order. Man, that is hard, hard. Oh, my goodness would have been in Jerusalem. They're in the main city. It's like, you know, everybody being in L.A. and then the rest of us hanging out at whatever, you know, not the greatest place in the world. Bakersfield, for example, right? <laughs> Beth, <laughs> if you're from Bakersfield, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to hate. Bethany is outside of Jerusalem. Simon the leper is not only someone that would have been outside of the, the Jewish social system because of his, his leprosy, but he would continue to be pushed out because of his past. And then, in all of that, a woman walks into the room. Now, to us, we read that and we go, okay, cool, congratulations, that's great. But Mark is saying something that would literally shake some of his readers out of their chair. In that day, unfortunately, the, as a rule, it was a break in etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by a woman unless she was serving food. And not only that, women were such outcasts in the society that not only wasn't, was it, there's no room for them, in the, for them in the social system, but also in the economic system. Women were not really allowed to make livings for themselves. They didn't work like the men did. Their only real hope for survival was marriage or, unfortunately, prostitution. That was the way they made their living. But sometimes, if they were lucky, their families would pass down something of great value to them, something that could be used for a dowry or to pay off you know, that, that, their portion of the marriage. Evidently, Mary's family gave her a flask of nard. The flask would have been her livelihood. It would have been her security. It would have been her only real material value in this life. And what does she do with it? She breaks it and pours it out over Jesus. She didn't just anoint Jesus with a few drops of ointment. She broke it so it can never be used again and poured it all out on her Savior. She was so willing to give all of herself in the worship of God, so much so that she gave him her future, she gave him her, her stability, her material possessions, and all of her heart in this simple act of pouring out this ointment on his head. Similarly, later on, Paul would write this to the Philippians, kind of, kind of having the exact same heart in his life, what he was willing to give for Christ as Mary did, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14, if you want to go there, you can. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Like Mary, Paul was willing, up to, willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ. Oftentimes, we, we have this picture of Paul that he was kind of like miserable dude before he came to know Jesus because we just read about a bunch of murders. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he was just killing people. But, but, but Paul was like the elite of the elite. He had dedicated his life to knowing God. He had dedicated his life to the things of the Torah he was probably a lot more spiritual than all of us combined, right? He, he knew how to live life, but not only that, he was elevated in their society. And when he gave up all that he had learned and said, you know what, I think I got all my studies wrong, I've got to restudy the Bible in the deserts of Arabia, he was giving up everything for Jesus. He was giving up his social standing, he was giving up his material value, he was giving up everything, his security, all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Mary and Paul chose not to hold back their worship for Jesus, but to pour all of themselves out in an act of discipleship to God. But why? What led Mary to this act of abandonment? What led her to say, you know what, I'm gonna give Jesus my security, my future, the possibility of a dowry in marriage. I'm gonna give all of that to him in this single act. There are two main interpretations of this passage in the Gospel of Mark, two answers to why Mary did what she did. The first view is that this is a symbolic anointing of a king in the life of Jesus. Remember in 1 Samuel, excuse me, we see uh, God sends Samuel to anoint Saul and David, right? This was a practice of God for his kings. 1 Samuel 16, 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, right? There was always this anointing of kingship over the king of Israel. So some commentators believe what is happening right now is that somehow Mary understood that it was her role to anoint God, to anoint Jesus as king of Israel, However, I think there are a couple of problems with this view, and this is just my opinion. I'm not a, a, a New Testament scholar, but uh, the first is that the oil that she used, nard, was not used for anointing kings. In fact, it was a very specific oil. It was a perfume that, that, that women would wear. You can see it in the Song of Solomon. It is a, it is a beautiful scent that, that people would wear as perfume. But it was also used for burial of the dead. And it was a completely different substance than the oil that was used to anoint kings. The second problem with this idea of this being a kingly anointing is that's not what Jesus says. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So clearly, Jesus didn't take this as his kingship anointing. He took this as 
She is anointing me for my death. She's anointing me for my burial. So what do I think Jesus, what did I think, what do I think Mary meant by this? The other interpretation of this scripture is that Mary had a realization of what Jesus was about to do. Even though she was in a room with all these disciples that thought Jesus was going to come in, he was going to destroy the Roman government, he was going to establish Israel as the rightful kingdom that it ought to be, there's a possibility that Mary figured it out. She must have realized somehow that, that, that Jesus was about to endure a death so gruesome that she needed to anoint his body because she wasn't, it wasn't guaranteed that it was going to happen later on. She wanted to anoint his body for death because she understood somehow Jesus was about to endure a death that would bring the kingdom of God through his sacrifice. Her act of anointing Jesus is is more likely exactly what Jesus said it was. She was anointing him for his burial. Maybe Mary was in the other room with her ear pressed against the door, longing to be in there but held back by the social order of that day, just listening to Jesus talk. And as she was listening to his voice, somehow she must have come to this realization that he was about to die. Maybe, maybe she heard his voice and it reminded her of a teaching that he had gave. Maybe she heard his voice and it reminded her of when, he, when she sat in front of him and just listened to him talk. Maybe, maybe somehow as, as she was thinking about Jesus, she remembered him weeping with her over Lazarus' death. And somehow that made her connect to the point that Jesus was about, about to endure a death also. Maybe as she, as she listened and as she thought, she was like, this is the Messiah. What is he doing with us? Why would the Messiah of Israel come and sit with outcasts like me? Why would he love me, a woman, not married, unworthy of the Messiah to come? Why is he in Bethany? Why is the Messiah with outcasts? Shouldn't he be with the, the elite? Shouldn't he be with the people that can help him bring in his kingdom? Maybe as she thinks through all of this, she thinks this Messiah is different than what we thought. This Messiah is not going to do what we thought he was going to do the way he, we thought he was going to do it. He's going to do something different. Maybe as she thought, she began to weep because she was losing Jesus like maybe as she wept, she thought, what can I do to save him? What can I do to fix this? And as she's going through her mind, maybe she thought, the only thing I can do is help him be buried the right way. The only thing that I can do is maybe prepare his body for burial. So she ran to the other room. She grabbed the only thing that, that was any worth in her life. And she said, I'm going to pour this out on my Savior because I don't know if anybody else is going to do it. So as his disciples looked around and, and questioned why she was anointing his body, she said, I know. I know what you're about to do. And let me anoint you the way you should be. Mary's act of self-sacrificing holistic discipleship is something that has been admired, admired over the years this story is told and she is often praised for what she did in light of her faith, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet while her act of discipleship is often praised, it's not as often imitated. Rather than model our lives after this simple act of pouring everything out over Jesus, onto Jesus, sometimes 
we hold things back from him. Sometimes there are parts of our lives that we say, you know what, I'm going to keep this for me. Oftentimes when we come to our relationship with God, we're awakened to his glorious good news. We, we realize we have a savior. We realize our need for a savior, most importantly. And, and we are so excited for the life that is about to come, the new life promised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, but subconsciously or consciously, what we end up doing is we take parts of our lives and we hold them back from the presence of God. These places become strongholds in our lives because we don't want God to touch them. We're really satisfied with the way they are. We keep them back from God because we know if he got one finger on that area, it would be radically different. We keep it from God. Some of us, maybe it's our jobs or success. Maybe we have an unhealthy relationship with jobs. We sacrifice our family and our relationships and communion with God just for the extra hours of couple work, uh, extra hours of work. For us, it's, it's not that we you know, are just hard workers and that's what we do. We're addicted to the pride that comes along with being viewed as a hard worker. We are pursuing success at all costs, and we're willing to give up anything that stands in the way, even the gift of family, communion with God, and relationship with the body of Christ. Heaven forbid God touch our work life, and we actually have to work 40 hours a week. Relationships, maybe for some of us it's relationships. Maybe you're in a romantic relationship, because, and you are not going to give that up because you love that person. God wouldn't want you to give up the thing that brings you happiness, the thing that, that, that satisfies your need for meaningfulness. And yeah, you mess up sometimes, but that's just what people do. We'll figure it out. We'll keep moving. Maybe it's a relationship with a group of friends that have a, has a negative influence in our lives. You justify and say, we're supposed to be friends with the world. That's why I'm being a good Christian. But in reality, you're not concerned with their salvation. You're concerned with the popularity and the sense of meaning you receive from being part of that group. Maybe for some of us, it's our habits. We have a very specific rhythm for our weekends. We have a very specific group of things that we like to do. And heaven forbid the hand of God touched that and we wouldn't get to watch what we want to watch. We wouldn't get to read what we want to read. We wouldn't listen to what we want to listen to. And listen, I'm strong enough to handle it. I can do it. I'm strong enough to my faith to watch this movie. Yeah, there's a couple of parts that may, may cause me to think some things I shouldn't think. But you know what? It's all right. I'm strong enough. Maybe it's our relationship with God. We have God fit into this theological box. And he doesn't move from that box. Now listen to me. I'm not anti-theology. I wouldn't be going to school for it if I was. Theology is beautiful. Theology is the study of the things of God. How beautiful is that? But sometimes what happens is we want to wrap God into this understandable box that we can keep him in and have no mystery whatsoever. And when we do that, what happens is when mystery comes, we feel like we're losing control of our relationship with God. We feel like, oh my gosh, I don't understand. You know, we have this theological concept of this is how God works. And then we experience something completely different. What do we do now? Is God wrong? No. Is the scripture that speaks of who he is and reveals to us theology wrong? No. Is our understanding of all of that could be wrong? Absolutely. We like our lives the way they are. We keep them the way they are because if we truly gave them over to him, things would be different. 
But when we keep things from God, what we're doing is we are refusing to take up his call to discipleship, and we are becoming simply just admirers of Jesus, keeping him far enough so he doesn't touch the places in our lives that we love the most. We explain away passages like Mark or Matthew chapter 16, through tw- verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What do we say to that passage? We say, yeah, picking up my cross means dealing with that intense persecution I get from my wife on a daily basis. He's not actually asking me to give up things that I like to do. This mindset, I'm sure that you would agree with me, is not only not the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a false view of grace. Let me tell you tonight that grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. Oftentimes when we say that, we talk about it in reference to the cost of Jesus. Jesus gave everything so that we may be free. And yes, that is 100% true. But grace costs you something also. It costs you your life. The proper reaction to the grace of Jesus Christ is to take our lives and say, this is yours, I'm yours. The proper response to the grace of Jesus Christ is just like Mary's flask of nard being broken and poured out. It's when we realize what Jesus has done for us, we give him everything because he is not just our Savior, but also our Lord. I'm not saying that somehow we can earn our way into heaven. I'm not saying that if you do enough good things, somehow you're going to get there or earn the merit of God. That is not what I'm saying. But I am saying the righteous response to the grace of Jesus is full abandonment of our control in our lives. Bonhoeffer says it like this in his book, Cost of Discipleship. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man or woman his life, and it is grace because it gives a man or woman the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Many Christians split their lives into two categories. They've got their spiritual side and their secular side. And I'm using the word secular just, be, just saying not spiritual, okay? The spiritual parts of our lives, scripture reading, praying, going to church, Maybe if you're into this whole church thing, you'll join a life group. And if you want extra credit, you'll tithe a little bit, right? The secular parts of our lives is everything else. Everything else, including what, we, what we're interested in, is, is part of, of our secular lives. Uh, our jobs, our leisure, our relationships outside of church, what we buy, what we watch, everything. The problem with this way of thinking is it creates areas in our lives where we think God is not interested in. And it creates areas in our lives where we think they don't affect our Christian walk whatsoever. It doesn't really matter what I watch on Netflix because I spend each morning in prayer, so I'll be strong enough when I get there. But this way of thinking is not only false, it's extremely dangerous. And not just dangerous, we're missing something. 
we're missing out on the full life that Jesus came to bring us. We're missing out on God wanting to immerse himself in every part of our lives and make everything you do holy ground. He wants to make everything in your life somewhere where you can say, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. He wants to speak to you or show you his presence in your vocation just as much as he wants to show you his presence through the scripture. He wants to sanctify you through your choice of habits just as much as through prayer. He wants to speak to you through your leisure time just as much as your time at church. God wants to use every part of your life to do something in you. If we were Christians who gave all of our lives to God and were willing to say, God, I want to see you move in everything I do. I want to see you move in the way I work. I want to see you move in the way I rest. I want to see you move in the way I talk, I act, I watch everything. God, I want you to do that. What would we look like? I think Christians would prioritize time with God, family, and community over those extra unnecessary hours at work. I think Christians would not chase success but trust the Lord with their lives and they would view their vocation as a calling rather than an identity. I think our Netflix accounts would look radically different. Our Amazon shopping trends would look radically different. Our Spotify plays would not be the same. What we do when we rise in the morning will be different. What we do at night will be different. What we do with our free time will be different. Everything would change. Are you with me? Everything would change. If, you were, if God was to come to you tonight and say, listen, I want to I speak to you daily through what you do at work, and all you have to do is trust me with everything in it, okay? Work the normal amount of hours. Don't go overboard. And I'm not, I'm not like anti-hardworking. Don't hear that. I know you think, young guy, he doesn't work, just whatever. But like, that's, that's not what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> Don't stereotype me like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the unhealthy addictions. I just want to clarify, okay? We good? All right. So if, we, if God came to us and said, I want, to, I want to give you a calling, and I want you to work in your job in a way that glorifies me, um, we'd be okay with a prayer meeting instead of that extra business meeting. We'd be okay with, with spending half of the, the, the lunchtime instead of getting those extra minutes on our computer and spending them evangelizing to our coworkers. We would be okay with going home at 5 o'clock on a normal day because we have somebody coming from work to have dinner with us, and we get to talk about the things of Jesus, we would be okay about going home at a normal time because we want to see our family and enjoy the blessings of God, right? Everything would look different. Our lives, if they were fully and wholly touched by the transforming grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we would be different people. I am yours, God. I am yours. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. The question comes, the question is, what are we willing to do? What level of sin are we willing to give up for Jesus? What level of our lives are we willing to say, you know what, God, this is yours. I'm willing, I'm willing to give you everything. Ancient writers of the way of Jesus noticed that in our walk with Jesus, there are stages to to how God begins to purify us. Things that, stages that we go through is begins to take things out of our lives and replace them with the things of the spirit. Taking the things of the, of the flesh and replacing them with the things of God. The first thing he begins to take away from us is what we're gonna call blatant sins. 
sins that are pretty much universally recognized as evil, both from the kingdom of God perspective and the secular world. Some examples of that would be extreme rage or oppression of the weak. God first begins to take away those blatant sins. But then secondly, he calls us out of deliberate sins. These are sins that the kingdom of God says are wrong, but the secular world around us says are completely okay. Uh, Some examples, easy examples, are sexual expression and marriage and divorce and all of these things, right? That the world says, no, you can kind of do whatever you want. Just go for it. Feel free. But the kingdom of God says, no, I'm calling you to something different, right? So God begins to take those deliberate sins and turn them into uh, actions of the Spirit instead. But God's not done yet. And oftentimes, this is where good Christians stop. But there's a deeper level of sin that God wants to transform us from. Unconscious sins are thought patterns that give birth to sins. Defining oneself by success, prioritizing work over people, being okay with uh, certain TV shows, having certain ways of thinking, um, unhealthy codependency on an individual or group. These are unconscious sins that, that we don't even realize are there, but they give birth to sin. You know what I'm talking about? God wants to purify you of that also. But he's not just done. He's not done yet. The last level of our sin is our inner orientations. Who do we trust? Sin at its deepest level is saying, what God has is not good enough for me. I need to do this on my own. Or, I don't trust God's will. I need to find my own sense of purpose and meaning. And so the deepest level of sin that needs to be transformed is, who do you trust with your life? Is it, do you trust your, your drive for success? And listen, we live in the Enlightenment age where um, we think we got it, you know? We are infected with this terrible idea that somehow humanity has, has progressed so much that we have got it all figured out. And in that century that the Enlightenment produced, we have two world wars in the bloodiest century that has ever existed, right? That didn't make sense, did it? No? That was pretty stupid. We, aren't, we can't get there on our own. We can't get to a place where we are somehow good enough even if we're not talking morally, just as people in general, we can't get there. We have to trust something, and it's not ourselves. God begins to take our lives to the deepest level and say, trust me. Where do you find your security? Where do you find your significance? Where is your meaning? Mary found all of this in the person of Jesus Christ, which led her, as she saw what he was about to do for her, Give up everything for him. My question for us tonight is, what do you and I have to give up? Inevitably, there's something in our lives that we have to give up. If you notice those level of sin, like we're all on a journey, and if you're you're dealing with a blatant or a deliberate sin, God bless you. We're so happy that you're here. Like you are not crazy. We all are either there or been there. You know what I'm saying? We get it. We're with you, and we can talk to you, and we love to to pray for you. But a lot of us, I'm willing to bet, are are dealing with unconscious sins or any inner orientation sins. We have things inside of us that 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 aren't necessarily fully given over to Jesus Christ. What are we willing to give up tonight? As I wanted to go through those stages of purification, not just because it's a healthy exercise, because I want us to name the level of sin that's keeping us from going deeper in communion with God. 
We need to name it and confess our sins to the Lord so that he may heal us and call us into a deeper discipleship to him. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're struggling with tonight, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation. There is only grace, a costly grace that cost Jesus everything and a costly grace that cost you to give it over to him. But there is a resurrection life on the other side of that decision. There is a life so good it can't be given by just people. There is no way for us to attain it on our own. That resurrection life only comes through the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brought to us. God is calling us into full union with him tonight. God is, God is calling you tonight. God loves you. He cares about you. He's not sitting there condemning you. He wants you to be like Mary and come and weep at his feet and praise him for who you are. Are we willing to abandon ourselves tonight? As we close, I just, I just want to take some time as um, as we just sit in the presence of God, we need to respond to what Mary did in this passage of scripture. James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I'm gonna ask that if there's anybody that's, excuse me, a leader in this church, a prayer warrior, come into the front or to the sides and, and just be available for prayer. I know this wasn't planned, but that's okay. Tonight, I think that we need to give God a true confession, a confession of things that hold us back from, from experiencing him in a deeper level. Whatever that is for you, maybe it's a clear sin. You've got it. You know exactly what it is. This is keeping me back from my relationship with Jesus Christ. I need to give this to him. But maybe for you, you haven't really figured it out yet. You know, you're still kind of like thinking through and it's like, okay, I'm not totally sure what I'm supposed to give to God. Let's pray about it. Because I promise you the Holy Spirit's gonna speak to us. I promise you the Holy Spirit will say, this is what I need you to give up tonight. So as Sam spent some time leading us in a song and as we just, I'll close this in prayer afterwards, but, but just, just come to the front Sit in your seat, kneel, do whatever you feel comfortable with and confess to God and be like Mary who decided to give up everything for him. God, we come before you humbled, humbled by your word. God, we just, we give it all to you. Maybe for some of us, it's, a, it's an inner trust structure. We, we trust ourselves in this area of our lives, and tonight we're saying, you know what? I'm not trusting myself anymore. I'm trusting you. Maybe for some of us, it's a, it's a thought pattern that leads to sin, and we know it does. We know when we get to sin, it's because of where we started. God, we're giving that to you. Maybe it's a deliberate sin, something that the world says, you're fine, just watch that TV show or just listen to that music or just hang out with that person. But you know what, God, we wanna give that also to you. And God, even if it's a sin that everyone says is wrong, but we're stuck, we feel like we're in the mud, we feel like we can't get out, tonight is the night where we say, I am fully abandoned to you. God, take me deeper in my relationship with you. God, I know in my own life, if there's one prayer that you have answered time and time again, it is God, take me deeper. You are so faithful to take us places that we didn't realize we could go. So speak to us tonight, God.
Show us your presence.